This is Decoding Security, a podcast from Microsoft Australia about how to protect your business from the ever-changing threat of cybercrime. On the show, you'll hear from leaders in cybersecurity as well as Microsoft experts as we break down strategies to help keep your business secure. I'm your host, Mark Anderson, and I'm the Chief Security Officer here at Microsoft Australia. In today's episode, I'm joined by three experts in the field of cyber to discuss managing cyber risks. You'll hear from Catherine Robbins, a 25-year cybersecurity industry veteran and the current leader of the Victorian Cyber Practice for KPMG. We'll also be joined by Damian Manuel, the director of Deakin University's Cybersecurity Research and Innovation Center. And you'll also hear from my colleague, Kenny Singh, the head of cybersecurity at Microsoft ANZ. In today's episode, you'll hear why organizations should consider a risk-based approach to cyber and how the pandemic affected our approaches to risk. Let's get into the conversation. And I wanna start by asking that basic question of, why should organizations consider a risk-based approach to cyber? And I think to kick things off, Catherine, I'm probably gonna hand to you first with that question. Thanks, Mark. I guess from a perspective, back in the olden days when we were starting our cybersecurity journeys as organisations, a maturity-based model made sense because we had low coverage and low maturity. Running a program that allowed you to sort of ramp up capability across the organisation was very important. But now the threats, the amount of connectedness, the threat landscape and the attacks that we're seeing across for cybersecurity are so vast that to try and do a maturity model-based risk posture is actually way more difficult and way more expensive and doesn't necessarily get you an alignment to what the organisation needs to close out risk. So a risk-based model sort of aligns what you need to do from what you see in your organisation as priorities, what the risk to the organisations are, aligning to a business practice of what you need to do from a business perspective, and then also prioritising your spend to be able to close out the things that pose the highest risk to your organisation. So that's why we're seeing a lot more of that adoption of risk-based approaches for cyber risk and cyber security. It's really interesting point, isn't it? That shift to moving towards a risk-based approach versus there's a lot of organisations still running a very compliance-based approach where let's take a list and then hit all these things in the list. And if we do that, we're good when actually it might not be focusing on the areas which are actually the highest priority in terms of risk for the business itself. I know, really good point. Damien, same question to you. Organisations need to manage cybersecurity risks commensurate with their risk appetite. And taking a risk-based approach also ensures that the whole organisation is engaged. The biggest problem is executives and board directors. Cybersecurity is an IT problem. And at the end of the day, it isn't. It's a people problem, a process problem, a supply chain issue. And lastly, a technology problem. And framing it in that risk-based context helps to drive it in the right direction. Yeah, the bit you mentioned there about the board level and understanding risk, a good example for me in that area was going back a few years, if you went to a board and started talking about ransomware, they'd be like, techie problem, don't care. Now, all of a sudden, there's been these profile attacks in the news quite regularly, even the government's talking about it quite regularly. And all of a sudden, now boards are having that conversation about ransomware and cause it and thinking about it in terms of true business risk because it's not just about wiping out your IT systems it's then the knock-on effects to the reputation of the organization and trust in the organization it's a really key aspect Kenny same for you and that question of why should we consider a risk-based approach so we fundamentally had two approaches to cybersecurity. The first approach was a maturity-based approach to cybersecurity. The second approach that's the more prevalent approach these days is the risk-based approach to cybersecurity 
cyber risk is really top of mind for board of directors and executives across the globe. Cyber risk is a part of the overall business risk of an organization. It's a core component of overall business risk. We've actually had very significant investment in cybersecurity programs over the last several years. There's an increased focus on understanding how these cybersecurity programs are contributing to the risk reduction in an organization. And then if we pivot and we look at the regulatory landscape, our regulators across the globe, for example, in Australia, our Australian Prudential Regulation Authority for the financial services industry is increasingly demanding that organizations look at their information security and information governance very, very closely. And the claims that we actually have across the globe about enterprise resilience be validated. So cyber risk management is becoming increasingly more important in that context as well. And then finally, alluding to what Damien was saying earlier, the risk appetite of an organization and the risk tolerance, which really is the deviation from the appetite, it's becoming increasingly critical to understand how cybersecurity programs are helping organizations meet that risk appetite in the acceptable levels of tolerance. Yeah, some very key points there, Kenny. From a point of view, I think we've articulated why organizations should consider a risk-based approach to cyber. But I guess then building upon that question, the next question is then, what are the key attributes to an effective cyber risk management program? I'll start with you, Damien, on this one. Firstly, start with looking at the program, where does it add value to the business? And where does it reduce the cost to the business? Because one of the challenges with having a cyber risk management program can be you build it to be too complex, too focused on compliance-based model as opposed to the sort of the risk-based model. So, you know, look at where does it add value to the business? The approach that you adopt should really be standard, repeatable and aligned with the organisational strategy. And so to that point, really, it should be driven by business strategy, enterprise risk appetite, the organisational structure, governance policies, procedures, and don't forget your people. So, you know, training and internal and external communication program is really important as well. But the other aspect when you're building out your cyber risk management program, don't bite off too much. Look at where you can be most effective in terms of implementing it and sort of working with your stakeholders across the enterprise. I want to pick up on that key point. It's about making sure that you, I think it was something that Catherine said earlier before around prioritisation, picking those areas which are the biggest concern to your business and maybe tackling some of those first. What are the crown jewels for your organisation? You don't need to apply a blanket policy to absolutely everything. You don't need to apply the same sort of risk management policy to the thing that tracks how many donuts you've got in the cafeteria that holds your supply chain or your warehouse management system. So it's about that prioritisation and making sure that you just take that piece by piece approach. Kenny, I'm going to come to you next on this one. So what do you believe are the key attributes of an effective cyber risk management program? So scope is a very key attribute of an effective cyber risk management program. What are the different kinds of components and assets that are covered by the cyber risk management program, OT, operational technology, IoT, Internet of Things, IT? What does that digital estate look like that this cyber risk management program is expected to manage effectively? That would be the first attribute that I'd call out. Then what does the threat landscape look like? What are the different threat actors? What kinds of threats could potentially impact the organization, the assets of the organization? looking at the value of these assets. What do these assets mean in the context of an organization? So that would be a very critical factor because we really don't want to spend more money protecting an asset than the value of the asset itself. What we also find helps a lot in an effective cyber risk management program is the use of validated industry-tested cybersecurity framework, cyber risk management program. For example, the NIST CSF, which is the NIST cybersecurity framework. 
That's a really good point. Taking that analogy I did earlier, you don't want to be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on protecting the thing that tracks the donuts in the cafeteria, right? Put that money elsewhere where it really matters to the business. And Catherine, same question to you. I agree wholeheartedly what Damien and Kenny have just said. I guess one other aspect that comes as part of the risk management process is what happens when things go bad. So your risk management should also include what incident response you've got, what the resilience component of what happens, God forbid, you do have the worst happen and you know you have a ransomware attack, a cybersecurity attack. You need to sort of factor in the rainy day, the horrific, if something terrible happens, what is the response and what is the recovery? And then part of that also includes making sure that you cover the people, the process and the technology aspects across that are enabling the risk appetite and the risk management process within the organisation so that people understand how they are part of the role of closing out the enterprise risk and also understanding what the crown jewels are. So I know what my crown jewels are. I've got my framework and I've got an industry-recognised framework because that also makes it easier if you're hiring people and they don't have to learn the strange bespoke that you've got. It might be more aligned to an industry one so you can sort of accelerate if you need to hire people to assist. And then you've got process management and your risk management, but then what happens is you have to make sure that people understand and everybody's in the same rowboat to help close out the risk and lift that cybersecurity posture across the organisation all the way from the board to understand what they need to do all the way through to the people that are touching computer systems or doing third-party supply chain and risk. A lot of the times we talk about people as part of the solution, but actually sometimes people are part of the problem in the area of insider risk. So let's switch gears and talk a little bit about how can organisations effectively manage insider risk, especially if you think about over the past 18 months, two years in the backdrop of the pandemic, all of a sudden your employees aren't necessarily all in that one building and location where you can keep that watchful eye over them. You might have have a thousand employees and one office. Now, when the pandemic hit, you've got a thousand employees and a thousand offices as they're all working from home. So how do we effectively manage insider risk? And Kenny, I'll probably start with you on that one. So the core component of managing insider risk very effectively is to look at it holistically from a people, process and technology lens to really zoom in on the culture of an organization. Is it a culture where people understand what's acceptable and what's not acceptable? Is necessary training, the required training, is that in place to create that awareness about what constitutes a cybersecurity incident, a cyber risk? So the people component of insider risk management is extremely critical. Then if you look at the process dimension, do we have the processes in place to understand and detect when there is an insider risk incident? So, for example, you know, do we actually have behavioral analytics at a process perspective that can actually look at whether something constitutes a suspicious activity or not? And then at a technology level, do we have the signals that can correlate the specific events in the context of the business? Let me just give you an example of that. So let's say an employee leaves the organization. And on the last day of leaving the organization, they exfiltrate, let's say, 200 gigs of data. They basically download this data from a cloud location and they put that data on a USB stick. Do we have the signals in the technology stack itself to understand one, that event happened, and second, that event happened in the context of the employee leaving the organization? You raised a good point there, Kenny, which was you talked about it in two different ways there. One was about training and the other then was about detection. So we must have that distinction between 
accidental insider risk where they're not doing it maliciously, it's a mistake that they've made versus the actual malicious intent, like you say, of let's extract a terabyte's worth of data and take that away on a hard drive and walk out the building with it. Again, same question around how can organizations effectively manage cyber risk? Damien, I'm going to throw it to you. Managing insider risk is really critical and dependent on leveraging culture within an organization. And how you communicate with your staff plays a big part. You need to foster a culture within the organization where cybersecurity risk management is everybody's role. So very similar to occupational health and safety, where if you see something going wrong, rather than walking away from the problem, you step in and be part of the solution. One of the other things that I've learned through working in large enterprises as well is not to talk down to staff when you're educating them about cybersecurity and you're raising awareness. Some of the challenges with doing that creates this sort of parent-child relationship where the end user abdicates themselves from any responsibility of trying to protect the organization because they believe the organization's got enough tools or strategies in place or controls to manage the cybersecurity risk. The other thing that you should really think about and consider is how do you educate staff to drive behavioral change? Because cybersecurity awareness is one thing and training is one thing, but you want to really drive long-lasting behavioral change. To give you sort of an example, we know that we shouldn't be eating to excess because that creates obesity. We know we shouldn't be drinking alcohol to excess and smoking because it's bad for our health, but yet people still do that. So the awareness is there, but it's not enough to drive behavioural change. And we need to adopt a similar practice with cybersecurity as well. The other challenge with working from home is you need to be conscious of the environment that you're working in. Are you working in an environment where you've got a partner who works for a competitive organisation that might be able to get access to the information that you're able to see on the screen? Controls that we traditionally had in the organisation to prevent information loss, such as data loss prevention strategies, no longer function in this sort of new hybrid environment because a user can basically pick up their mobile phone and start recording what they're seeing on the screen. So you really need to take that into consideration. Yeah, it's that whole thing of getting the culture to be cybersecurity is everybody's responsibility, right? Mm-hmm. I know I know we sort of say that as a bit of a mantra, but we genuinely mean it. We've got to really drill that home with everybody. And Catherine, your views? I agree. Cybersecurity is everybody's responsibility. I guess from an insider risk perspective, we're starting to think more about and the fact that the perimeter that we had in our organisations, that sort of hard shell in a marshmallowy core on the inside, we don't have that perimeter anymore. We're all coming from our homes and our homes do not unless you're a cybersecurity professional, and I don't know about you, Damien and Kenny, but I think I've got quite the multi-tiered, strange network because that's what I do for a living. But most people have their kids on the same network, they're playing games, they're connecting to the internet. They pose a threat to the corporate network via the home network, and they're not aware of even the accidental data breach problems that happen. You print out something at home, you throw it in your recycling bin, and it's got PII information that you're accidentally, you're not shredding it, you're not putting it in any of the safe bins that you usually would because you're not going into the office. Just little Mm. things that don't cross your mind. Or we've had the accidental data breach where we've had clients or staff that have joined a Teams call and their kids have joined a Teams call and accidentally, you know, they're back to back and I've seen the school work and the school has seen the confidential client data. So just some of the practices that we need to do because we're in our home network and we're not really geared to think that home could be the source of compromise. 
when was the last time that people updated their personal iPad that they might be using to the latest versions? When they're connecting from their home network, when was the last time they looked at whether they're running the latest firmware on the equipment supplied to them from their telco vendor or their personal computer where they might be using it quickly to log into something? When was the last time they updated that? Those things that automatically happen to you at work that now you've got to start to think about the responsibility of you doing that in your own house because you inadvertently might be presenting a risk to your organisation by connecting. And we do have endpoint security running. So if you're connecting with your home laptop or with your iPad where you've got MDM and there's some of that connectivity protection and sort of little bubbles to prevent you from putting too much risk to the organisation, but just being cognisant of some of the work practices that you have in place at home where you might accidentally be the insider threat by something that you've done that is just, I'll quickly go and help a kid or I'll let them use my iPad for a minute and they've downloaded something that might put the organisation at risk. So it's having that paranoia almost of, could this be something that causes risk to my home network and inadvertently to my work? And then separately to that, you've got the people that are looking at the opportunity where they're going to be the people that do something wrong within the organisation anyway, that now use the no one's watching me in my house. I can do what I want. I still have access to the company resources. Maybe now's the time to do fraud. And we have seen a little bit of that happen in the pandemic. So the fact that there's nobody sitting next to you in the office going, hey, should you have access to that? You've got the privacy in your own home to be able to do the odd strangeness. From an insider risk perspective, from an enterprise offering, the accidental insider risk is what we've spoken about. But then the real insider risk that importance of having privilege access management, least privilege is still important, but even more important now, you want to make sure the people actually having access are the right people having access and you are really monitoring that access. And then some of the endpoint protection or the EDR technologies and the NDR technologies and some of the stuff that we've deployed historically that are now having problems. So you know, I'm going to go on a little bit of rant of technology, but when you look at things like the EBA technologies or UBA technologies that sort of learn over time what Kathy does in the network, yeah. she's no longer coming through that. So all of the stuff that I do now would be seen as way off the reservation, not my normal user behavioural analytics stuff. So I would be logging in and now we've got to get all of those technologies to now learn the new normal, but some yeah. of that new normal could include some of that insider threat. So Some of the things we're now starting to have conversations with our clients about, pivoting those technologies, adding additional layers like the NDRs, the EDRs, and starting to look at zero trust models to sort of prevent east-west traffic, God forbid, something insider happens to being able Mm -hmm. to contain it before it becomes something catastrophic and you're in the news. The aspect of monitoring staff, we've all got sort of complex IT systems that can be used to monitor staff. One of the great things that the cybersecurity team could do is with that data, provide sort of information to HR because it may be an early indicator of somebody who's suffering from a high-stress situation because of working from home, they're not coping very well. And so it's almost like you're able to use those tools that Catherine's mentioned to provide information to HR to step in and prevent people becoming inadvertently or malicious sort of insider aspect as well. And that's a really great aspect where it shows the value of cybersecurity not in terms of punitive punishment of people, but being proactive to prevent incidents from occurring as well. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because if you shift and look at folks that work in defence and intelligence related industries, folks that hold a clearance, 
as part of holding a clearance, you have folks like security officers that are there to make sure that there's no changes in behavior and spot changes in behavior and then still make sure that those folks are able to hold a clearance. To your point, if they're drifting off and all of a sudden they're showing up to work really late or they're showing up in a Ferrari one day when they had a Yaris the day prior, those types of things are indicators in that sort of world that there are very well-defined policies and procedures for it. I just wonder whether there's an element of some of that needs to sort of, not in maybe the way it's done in the defense world, but elements of it creep over into just general IT management and risk. Food for thought. So given the recent proliferation of supply chain attacks, what would you consider are the key factors when it comes to effectively managing a third-party risk? Damien, I'll throw that one to you. When you're looking at third parties, you really need to assess your whole supply chain and understand who's got access to your environment, what kind of data have they got access to, are you pushing data to them that they're processing and then sending back, even an understanding of your third party, because often they'll outsource themselves as well. And so you've effectively got fourth or fifth parties. It's really important from an organizational perspective to get your vendor management or procurement team involved. So that way they can help to act as gatekeepers to make sure that you're integrating cybersecurity controls into contracts. You're potentially including things like right to audit clauses. But the number one key thing, because a lot of these companies are starting to understand the importance of cybersecurity, it's about helping them to improve their capability and maturity at the same time. You don't really want to go in with a big stick and punish organizations because really at the end of the day, you need them to uplift their capability to help protect you. So you're as much on the hook as they are from that perspective. But you need to really sort of make sure you do have a good understanding of how your information is leaving the organization, how it flows through these third parties, what services they might provide or what accounts you're giving them to give them access to your internal systems. If you don't have that sort of information, you're going to be in a world of pain because a breach in one of your third parties will ultimately end up in a breach with you. You really want to try and avoid that. That's some really key points. Kenny, have you got anything to add on that? So one of the strategies, Mark, that's worked really, really well for us at Microsoft in our own cyber risk management over the years is the implementation of this strategy that's really top of mind for the industry right now. And that's a zero trust strategy. The way we've been thinking about it in the context of third-party risk management is if we really think carefully about the blast radius, if I may call it that, right? So for example, if a third-party component on your network was to be compromised, as we've actually seen in some of the prevalent attacks over the last kind of six months or so, do we actually have a set of controls in place? Do we have this zero trust strategy that takes signals from identities, endpoints, apps, data, network, infrastructure, micro-segmentation? Do we have all of those things in place that even if the third-party component was to be compromised, the damage is contained? So our zero trust approach has really helped us in that context. The other thing that's actually really helped us is basically relying on third-party attestations and auditing. So for example, SOC 1 reports, SOC 2 reports. Is it possible that we can extend our organization's risk assessment framework and take into consideration the third-party risk as well as the risk in our own organization as well? Some really key points there. This has been an absolutely excellent conversation, and I'm sure we could probably keep talking for another hour or two hours even. But what I'd really like to do is leave the viewers with a key piece of advice from each one of you as experts and practitioners in the field. What would be that one piece of advice that you would give to anybody that is thinking about implementing an effective cyber risk management program? Catherine, I'm going to start with you first. The two key areas and lessons learned are the understanding what 
you're protecting in your organisation because it helps you drive the risk appetite, the risk posture and getting an understanding of what you're trying to protect and what you hold dear. And then the other side is resilience, understanding that all your prevention mechanisms may one day not be effective and you have to plan for that detection, the response and the recoverability aspect. Resilience is often misunderstood and not very well focused. We're starting to see a little bit more of that, but resilience is definitely something that I think is one of the key takeaways for cyber risk and a cyber risk program. Yeah, key word that I really like, which is resilience and resiliency. Damien? Stakeholder management is going to be really key. As you try to push the program out through the organisation, you're going to need champions and you're going to need people that are supportive. You're going to encounter resistance within the organisation due to the rate of change. That's normal. So you need to develop some personal resilience yourself to help drive that change through the organisation and make sure that you're communicating clearly, often, and that the value of what you're demonstrating in that communication comes through. And that might be in terms of reduced cost to the business. It might be making things easier for certain parts of the organisation, or it could even be by providing dashboards and reporting that could be consumed by other parts of the organisation to improve performance as well. The stakeholder management, clear communications, and your own personal resilience to drive the program forward. Awesome. Last but absolutely not least, Kenny. So the two key lessons we've learned is a balance between an organisational level view for cyber risk and cyber risk at the level of specific business groups. So just to put this into perspective, at Microsoft, we have an enterprise risk management framework that's very closely aligned with the goals and objectives of Microsoft as an organization globally. Then this risk management framework gets cascaded down to the individual business groups where it's contextualized, where the specific controls, the specific requirements of each of these business groups is taken into consideration in the evaluation of the risk. So for example, when this enterprise risk management framework gets cascaded down to the Microsoft 365 business, there's a Microsoft 365 control framework that this business group has actually defined based on their specific context, you know, organizational and technical context. The evaluation of the design and operational effectiveness of each of these controls happens in the context of this enterprise risk management governance framework. The benefit of this approach is, you know, as I was actually alluding to before, that you basically get a unified organizational view through this cascade model. So you can see how cyber risk is being managed across the organization, and yet you give the flexibility and the accountability for each of your respective business groups to basically do their own cyber risk management, their own cyber risk assessments, and then take that information and cascade that up to the enterprise level view. Excellent. This has all been great advice. And first of all, I want to say thank you to my panel today, to Catherine, to Damien and to Kenny for sharing your thoughts and insights. You've been listening to Decoding Security, a show about how to protect your business from the ever-changing threat of cybercrime. This podcast is brought to you by Microsoft Australia. Microsoft Australia provides a comprehensive suite of end-to-end security solutions unified across people, devices, apps, and data. For more information, visit the website microsoft.com forward slash decoding security. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Decoding Security, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Mark Anderson, and we'll be back next episode with more Decoding Security.